Guess what? We are in season seven of the Iron Woman podcast. I'm Rosalie, and I really like Crave Jerky pink flavor. Also, it's raining tacos from out of the sky. Tacos, no need to ask why. Just open your mouth and close your eyes. It's raining tacos, yum, 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 and yum. It's like a dream. Also, we couldn't do this without our sponsors, Wahoo Fitness, After C Nutrition, and Smash Fest Queen. And now, the ladies you've been waiting for, Alyssa Gadeski and Haley Chura. Bye for now. Hi, Haley. What have you been doing the 24 hours since I last talked to you? This is like a, probably our shortest break from talking and seeing each other. Alyssa, it's been, it was so good to see you this past weekend in person, in real life at Ironman 70.3 Indian Wells, La Quinta in California. And we both raced, which is unique for us. I guess we haven't done that in several years. So it was awesome to see you. I haven't been doing much of anything, enjoying the off season, eating and doing some light, light physical exercise. I spun on the bike this morning just to keep myself moving so that during these next couple of weeks of my off season, I'm actually able to enjoy myself and I'm not super sore. How about you? Yeah, I agree. I like the movement post race style, like at least a few days before I really let myself take any time like off if I want to do that for off season or anything like that. So I went on a little hike yesterday. We actually had a baby shower day for Sharissa Warnick Clarkson now, but she was Sharissa Warnick when she was racing as a pro and she is expecting her baby in like very soon here in the next week or two. And so we did a hike, which was nice. My legs were actually pretty sore. I forgot what that was like um, after triathloning. And then today I'm going to go swim masters. Hillary's coaching masters. So um, I'm going to get a little swim in and we'll see how that goes. Hopefully she won't make me, you know, do too much hard stuff today, but it's a big master's group. So I'll just kind of hang out in the back of the lane if I have to, I think. Oh, nice. Lane one. I recommend lane one or lane 10, like, or depending on how many lanes, the outside lanes are the best place to hide the back of the outside lanes. <laughs> Take advantage. You earn that, but you can, you can save leading lane four for next time. <laughs> Awesome. Well, it was cool to see you. What did you think of the race in Indian Wells? Yeah, I thought it was, you know, it was a ways to travel from the East Coast. So I will say that getting there. So I flew out of Charlottesville, which always means it could be an extra connecting flight or something like that. But I flew Charlottesville to San Diego. And then it was like almost a three hour drive, actually, with traffic and stuff by the time Friday that I was leaving to drive from San Diego over to Palm Springs. But as I was like coming up and over the mountains and you get to cross where like the PCT crosses the mountains and it's like snowy up there. It's like so cold. You're pretty high elevation. And then you get to descend down into the Palm Springs desert area. It was super cool. And I was like, okay, this is like a pretty nice destination for a race. This is going to be good. And then I did a little like Friday night swim in an outdoor pool, which is a very rare thing. And so that was, that was cool. It was, I thought it was like a very, destination for the race, you know, and overall, like, I think, I think the cold was overhyped. What did you think about the cold? We've gotten, we also, I put a feeler out for some questions, so we'll try and answer some of these and maybe as we give our like race recaps, but it was, I thought the cold was overhyped because in the end, the water temperature was 57 degrees, which is cold, but like not that cold. Right. And then the air temperature I thought was actually pretty warm. Granted, I'm accustomed to colder temperatures, but I didn't find it to be that bad. I think the cold was overhyped too. I, I was not that cold. In fact, I wish I had warmed up a little bit more in the water before the start. I was a little nervous about doing any kind of warm up because I thought the water was going to be really cool. I think it was, it was too cold. It was a beautiful start venue. I mean, it was, you know, we got to watch the sunrise over this lake. And like you mentioned, it it's in this valley, we're in this valley. And then there's these mountains, like snow covered mountains around you. And it was, it was really a beautiful race venue. I wish they had more parking at the swim start. My mom was actually in town for the race and she doesn't get to come to many races. And 
I, she didn't even come out to the swim because she was worried about the shuttle and getting back. And I really wanted her to be there on the run. So I, you know, didn't have any cheers at the swim, which was a little bit sad. I couldn't hand off, you know, all my gear to anyone, which is, and it's a perk if you have someone at a race, but that is the one thing. And it was just beautiful. I wish more people could have seen that. Yeah, I agree. I think the biggest thing I saw like from a high level was probably standard first year race issues, right? Like the traffic seemed, I mean, I did, I see on the bike, I saw a lot of traffic backed up. And I think probably a lot of that was just like, people didn't know people weren't used to this race happening. And, you know, I think that's pretty standard. That said, like no one was, you know, I've been in some races certainly where traffic's been backed up and people are like yelling at you angrily and I wasn't getting that. So major kudos to the community there. Maybe they at least appreciate the event, but they probably didn't appreciate the unexpected backups. And I think that did, it really affected people who did try and take the shuttles to see the swim start. They weren't really able to get back up to see maybe the first part of the run, especially for the pros. So, you know, I think that was something I'm sure they'll continue working on ironing out with like the city planners and things like that. However, they have to close roads and reroute traffic and stuff. That's, that's a big job. And you know, that said it was a safe bike course. Like I never felt completely closed roads. Yeah, I mean, that is awesome. When you have those completely closed roads for us, it was, that's, you know, that's not every race. So I felt, I love that. Yeah. One thing I think we both will say was unexpected about the bike roads. You know, Car- we had Carly on a couple of weeks ago telling us about the course and things like that. And she said the roads were great. And I really, I, you know, Carly, the invite is there to come ride in Virginia, because if you think those roads are great, then you should, you will be like, never come back from Virginia from the roads I ride on because I found them to be quite bumpy. There's a lot of chip seal and a lot of like bumps and rough road. And again, it's nothing that we've never raced on. It's nothing that we didn't see. It it wouldn't keep me from racing the race again, I guess, but I wouldn't call them great roads. Carly, you lied. We love you, Carly. (laughs) Carly Johan, she raced. She had a, you know, a a solid race there. I think we were all racing end of the season racing, kind of like hanging on to fitness. And if anyone didn't catch the results, Chelsea Sodero won her first every, it was her first 70.3 win. It was not her first 70.3. She was in Waco a couple weeks ago. That was, she had a fantastic day and I was second. And then Carrie Lester was third. And someone did ask through the Instagram if we saw each other on course. And so I, I didn't see you on the bike, Haley. There was like one short out and back. And so we, I didn't catch you on that. And then I saw you, you were probably at like a mile and a half into your second loop of the run. And I was going in from my first loop of the run and Haley, you had like a slight downhill. I had a slight uphill and you, so I had just seen Chelsea, you know, a little bit ahead. And then I actually saw Carrie And then I saw like, I was just passing Carrie as you came into sight and you were freaking flying. And Haley, we did, we like made eye contact and I was like, go Haley, go. And you just gave me this look and I was like, she's got her. Like, cause you know, when you're racing, when you're coming up from behind someone, like you've obviously been paying attention to like, if you're gaining on them and hopefully like your mom was there, hopefully she was maybe giving you some information. Maybe you were getting information from other people. So like you knew you were going to get her maybe, but like, I could just tell like in your heart of hearts, you like had this, I was so excited for you. Oh, thank you. I did appreciate your cheer there. I was, I was doing a terrible job of acknowledging people, but I was taking it all in people yelling at me on course. And I was, I was just going as hard as I possibly could. My watch actually wasn't I, I hit the wrong button or something and I was not lapping it properly. And I had an idea I was running fast because I had like the total time on there. And so I'm like trying to do the math. And of course my math is like terrible when I'm racing. And then, yeah. And it was the kind of course where you couldn't necessarily see where people were. Like we were winding around the Indian Wells golf course, which is really beautiful, mm-hmm. but it wasn't like a bunch of out and backs. And it was kind of a really kind of in itself kind of wild loops. <laughs> I don't know how to describe it. What would you call that shape? Yeah, oh, no, it was, it, you did, you like turned inside <laughs> out on yourself a few times within the golf course, but then you'd like pop up over this little bump and you'd have like a gorgeous view. It was one of, one of the best, I think, scenic run courses I've ever really run on, to be honest. I think it was really well done. Um, and I don't typically like courses like that are like golf paths and golf cart paths and stuff, but I thought it was really nice. I think that's another one of the questions we got Haley was like something we wish we knew about the venue before we started. And I think 
I knew it was on a golf course. And so I, I figured it's going to have those like ups and downs like golf courses do and be kind of crazy like that. But I think a lot of people were caught off guard because I think they thought it was going to be like a flat fast in that sense run. But yeah, I think I know it was, it was just like these short ups and downs and we were on a couple different surfaces. Like we did some on grass, some parts on dirt and then a lot on these cart paths. So most of it was on cart paths or on asphalt. So it was beautiful though. I mean, it was well done, well supported. I was warm on the run. I, I did run in just sports bra and I was glad I did that because it, but it wasn't as hot as previous races this year. It was pretty nice run temperatures, which, you know, set us up for some good run splits. In congratulations to you breaking the 130 barrier off the bike for the first time ever. That yeah. was, uh, I was pumped for you. I was pretty pumped. I have to say, because that was like, you know, above all I wanted to get another triathlon under my belt. So Haley, it had been seven months since I had raced a triathlon when I counted, which is like oh. unheard of for me. And so, you know, I just wanted to get another one under my belt and get back kind of on the horse in that sense. And then I did, I, I had worked really hard to get some speed back in my legs after the long trail and the recovery has been a little bit of a road for me. So I was so pumped to like get off the bike and like my legs were working and like I was seeing paces that I like to see on the watch. And again, like you had to kind of run off a feel based for that run course, but I knew like things kept kind of lapping out in the right spot. And I was like, Oh my God, it's going to happen today. And like, I feel like 70.3 runs are so hard because it's like, you have to, you were like, I mean, you looked like you were like totally sprinting the whole time, but like, you feel like you really are running as hard as you can for you know, 13.1 miles. So it was, uh, really cool though, to get that sub 130 finally. And so now, now I feel like, I think that was like very close to my open half marathon PR. So maybe I'll have to go run an open half to prove to myself I can run faster if I don't have to bike 56 miles first. <laughs> I know. I think, I don't know. I think it's pretty cool that you've run your 273 mile PR, your 5k PR, and now your half marathon off the bike PR. That's All true. Now I just have to do the mile year. race, the mile race. <laughs> you can go run with Kelly Philno and try to go for that sub five. <laughs> um, but, uh, it was, yeah, it was a spectacular, I loved the run course. It was really pretty and, um, lots of support. I did. We met a lot of people, a lot of fans of the podcast, which was always cool. So thank you to everyone who came up and said hi before and after the race and some during, Oh, I did get one person who yelled at me. It was like, go Alyssa. And I was like, nope, wrong host. But, um, but then I think she actually realized it was like, Oh wait, no, you're Haley. <laughs> I am honored to think, hopefully that was on the run. I'm honored to think someone was watching you run and thinking that was me. That was great. So, and let's see, I'm just looking at the other questions. A lot of questions came in about the chilly temperatures. And again, I really found it to be quite like the perfect temperature for racing. I didn't wear any extra clothing on the bike. I thought by the run, like, yeah, it was, it was perfect run temps, if not a little even warm or something. So I wouldn't let the, the temperature like deter you from this race or anything like that at this time of year. No, even before the start, I was like nervous. We'd be cold when we were waiting before the start. And it was not any colder than a typical 70.3 when you're, it's just that early morning, um, temperature is a little bit cooler. So bring a jacket, but I didn't need anything special. Exactly. And I will say too, I thought that hosting it, the finish at the tennis center, the Indian Wells tennis center was a really great pick. They had some concessions open. So like people could have concessions. They had water fountains everywhere with like water bottle fillers everywhere. They had plenty of bathrooms that were nice and clean and open. Super um, nice bathrooms. They did. They like the, you know, a huge thank you to the racket club, which allowed the pros to have a shower. And so Haley, did you take advantage of that shower? Because I noticed that you ruined your streak of not wearing your kit for the awards. So I mean, was that I like did, what helped I you? <laughs> I changed my outfit. I did not shower. I um, I I don't know. I just run out of time always. And it was like you had to walk around the corner. And I was like, oh, it's too far. So I did change my clothes because, like I said, I had my mom there. So that was it was convenient. I was able to get to like my bag and get to my clothes and I got some food and, but I know, I, I don't know why this one I decided to, to actually change. It was the one weird thing is that like, it starts getting dark in like the four o'clock hour. And so you're getting up for awards and it was like dark out. Like that's doing a race in December when the days are so short in the Northern hemisphere was a little bit wild. And so that was one of the reasons, like when the sun starts getting down, it started getting a little cooler. I had to like put on some dry clothes. Okay. Well, 
good to to finish the year i guess like that you ruined your streak though which i was a little disappointed of but um oh yeah. I'll, I'll be back again in 2019 all my disgusting self <laughs> but overall a really fun race i think it was fast this weekend i think it's one of those like the bike course is definitely flat right and so conditions will dictate the roads are rough though and it could be windy there um i think we had a little bit of a headwind but nothing too major to make slow things down or anything so um and the lake was like super calm for us um and so you know again conditions can always change it but i think it's a it's a good friendly course for people who want to get a 70.3 under their belts for sure exactly are those all our questions i think so at least we do have some mailbag but we'll we'll circle back to the questions because first i want to talk about our new deliveries that we both got recently and they are waiting to be unboxed and set up um we both received our Wahoo kickers. And I'm so excited because while I was racing, Charlottesville was getting, I saw pictures of anything from seven to 13 inches of snow from friends reported in Charlottesville. So I needless to say, probably won't be riding outside too much, at least right away here. So I'm going to be enjoying some time inside, setting up the kicker and getting ready to go on that. I saw all the the snow reports from the East coast of the U S and I was wondering if you guys got hit pretty hard, but, um, me too. I love indoor riding. Even when it's 70 degrees and sunny, I ride indoors. So <laughs> I'm excited to try out the Wahoo as well. So big thank you to Wahoo for sending those. I can't wait to get home and get it out of the box and give it a try so we can report back on what we think. And I also met Stacy Perlis from Wahoo at the Outspoken Women Triathlon Summit a couple weeks ago. And it was cool. I talked to her. She's a Georgia Bulldogs fan. So she was the only person who cared that they lost. At, <laughs> I tried to tell Sarah Gross, our producer, I was like, Georgia just lost against Alabama in football because it happened during one of our breaks. And I actually got to catch the fourth quarter. And Sarah was like, I don't even know what sport you're talking about. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So then Stacey was there and it was like, oh, I can like commiserate with someone. So great people over there at Wahoo. And we thank them for the support of the podcast. And another sponsor update. So some of you may have noticed that we had our coffee method sponsor ha- is doesn't exist anymore. And with small businesses, you know, they come and kind of go and they're ever evolving and changing. And so first thing, if you did have a coffee method subscription and if you've had any issues with that or anything like that, getting that sorted, let us know and we can help you with that. And if you are missing your coffee subscription, don't worry because one of the partners from Coffee Method has created his own Fens Coffee company. And so now he's taking on that role and helping us so that Iron Women and Live Feisty have a coffee blend because that's really fun. And we loved that. And so we're excited that they're back. So Fens Coffee and they have the same blends. They have the Iron Women blend. They have the Feisty blend. And you can subscribe or you can just do an individual order. And Haley, it's the perfect time to be doing like a little stocking stuffer. I think if you use the Iron Women code, you can get a bag for under $10. So I know people are doing like secret Santas and stocking stuffers and things like that. It would be a perfect way. You can just go to Fen, it's two N's, F-E-N-N coffee.com. And so I'm really excited to try that. It's like holiday season. I'll go and ride my Wahoo and then have a nice little cup of coffee and stay warm while I watch like the snowfall. Oh man, this time of year, I'm riding at like max 90 watts. So I can drink coffee while riding, but it is Max Fennell, who's a fellow pro triathlete who, um, started Fen coffee. And so definitely check that out. They actually, I actually got some at the, uh, outspoken women triathlon summit. However, it is in bean mode still. I don't have a coffee grinder here. So I, I do need to get home. Um, so I can try all these, these great things and, and, play in the snow, but congratulations to Max Fennell on his, his new Fen coffee. And we're excited to partner with you again. And so now we will go into the mailbag, Haley. We got a couple questions here and the first question came in and they wanted to know if there is a list somewhere that's publicized of the pros who have qualified for 70.3 or, uh, Ironman world championships. And the answer is that there is. So Haley, did you, were you able to find it? It's a little tricky. I know I needed your help. So if you go to ironman.com and you, uh, on the very top, there's a, a little 
thing that says results. And so you, you know, put your cursor over that and then go down to where it says professional athletes. And then there is a rankings tab, I guess, and you click on rankings and then you'll be able to see the Kona pro rankings for men and women and the 70.3 rankings for women and men. And so you can check that out, see who's qualified so far, see where they've qualified, where they're from. Yeah. You can, yeah, check it all out. (laughs) And our second mailbag question, Haley came in from Alicia, who uh, also helps out with a lot of live feisty and outspoken stuff. So hi, hi Alicia. And she wanted to know about health insurance for pros. I thought this was a great question. So she wants to know where professional triathletes, particularly the Americans, what do we do for health insurance? And so this is a great reminder. So this will be coming out on Thursday, the 13th or December. Yeah. Okay. And so the 15th of December, Haley, is for other American professional triathletes who might be in a position where they don't have another job that gives them health insurance or a partner or anything like that, that they can use their health insurance or anything from. They need to get it through the marketplace and the marketplace. Healthcare.gov. Healthcare.gov is, and it's, you have to sign up by December 15th. Otherwise you are out of luck for the year, which is not a good thing, especially doing what we do. And so then, I mean, I'm probably not the expert on this, but basically you can then purchase your plan and the plans are kind of separate by state. So like Haley and I both go to healthcare.gov to sign up and log in and do our profiles, but then our options for health insurance vary a lot depending on what's available within our state. Yes. And it is, it can be a little confusing. And so I do always like give myself some time to look through the different options and kind of weigh in like cost and what's covered. And I mean, luckily now compared to when I first, when I first left my corporate job, we didn't have healthcare.gov. And so you were buying, you know, single health insurance just for a single person rather than group health insurance. And a lot wasn't covered unless you wanted to pay a lot. And so now you more is covered, which is, is good for us because, you know, we, we, we do use our bodies a lot for our job and, you know, the health, my health is like a really big part of my job. And so it's good to have, you know, good health insurance and have, you know, all the, you know, preventative care and everything that you need covered. And so, yeah, it's expensive. It's more than I would love to pay, but like I said, you have to have it. And because in this line of work, like there's risks involved. And if you get hurt, like you want to make sure you have health insurance and at least the marketplace makes it affordable for us, you know, as single, you know, working for our, just ourselves, self-employed. There's the word I'm looking for. And I think the affordability comes from, there is like subsidies available for Americans based on income. They kind of give you this, like you put in your income and then they give you a subsidy amount that you can use if you want to help, help offset the, the amount that you would pay monthly. Because if you don't have that, it is, it's quite expensive if you don't qualify for any sort of aid or anything like that. And so that's helpful. And then it is like Haley, like you said, it's just nice to not have to feel like you have to make a medical decision based on like costs. Like if you need medical help, you can, you can go and get it um, and not have to be like, well, maybe I'll just race a couple more times and see if it still persists or something like that before having to pay for it. And you learn quickly what's covered and what's not. If you're not as diligent as Haley, because I had to go get my ears cleaned and I paid a lot of money to go do that from an urgent care. And I learned that my health insurance this past year does not really cover urgent care as much. So I, um, you know, you, you learn quickly with that kind of things too. And I also have now learned how to not let my ears like fill up with wax, which I guess is a genetic thing. And we can talk about that on another podcast, maybe (laughs) the American healthcare system. We could talk this. I'm sure their entire podcast is dedicated to this, but you can also get dental insurance on there, which I did. And then I kind of regret it because a lot was not covered. And I was like, I'm just going to pay for the dentist, which stings when I go in there. But in the long term, it is actually, I think a better, better model for me, but yeah, it's, it's, it's hard, but you know, there are people you can reach out to, to, if you have questions and, and you know, they want to help. So I think it's hard for everyone. So definitely ask the questions if you need to. And Haley, we do have an interview this week and we're super excited to have her on the show. Um, we're talking to Sarah Reinertson. 
Yes. If you aren't familiar with Sarah, she is the first ever leg female leg amputee to finish Kona. And her story is pretty incredible because she actually started Kona in 2004 and didn't make it. She missed the bike cutoff, I think by like less than 15 minutes. She trained super hard for an entire year, came back in 2005 and she finished and, um, becoming that first female leg amputee to ever finish in Kona. And then this year in 2018 for the 40th anniversary, she came back to Kona and she raced again faster than ever before. And she's going to tell us a little bit about why she wanted to come back, why it was important, you know, 13 years later to be back on that Kona start line and the finish line and what else she's been up to. Wahoo is dedicated to the journey of every athlete from a sprint to Ironman. Wahoo is with you every pedal stroke, every stride and every trying moment with the commitment to make you better. As endurance athletes themselves, Wahoo provides an ecosystem of products, including Kicker Smart Trainers, Element Bike Computers, and Ticker Heart Rate Monitors to provide exactly what you need to reach the finish line and smash your training goals. Hi, Sarah. Welcome to the Iron Women podcast. Hi, thanks for having me. And huge congratulations to you on your recent finish at the Ironman World Championships. And this wasn't actually your first finish in Kona, but it was your first attempt in 13 years. And at age 43, you managed to beat your 30-year-old self by more than 20 minutes, finishing at a time of 14.41. So compared to that historical day in 2005, when you became the first female leg amputee Ironman finisher, what was your day like in 2018? Oh, my day in 2018 at the Ironman World Championship was just magical. I mean, we really, we lucked out with some really ideal race conditions, but I was also very well trained to take advantage of those conditions. So um, I had a a decent swim and um, the bike was just, it was still hard, but I just, you know, without having the headwinds like I did in 05, I was able to just hammer on the bike and hang on for the run. My goal was to break 15 hours. So to do a 1441 was really much, was shattering the record that I really wanted to break by a lot. So I was thrilled. And I think that Haley and I were talking a little bit before you came on and watching your story in 2004 and 2005, it made us like, we need to dig up those old tapes because I know I personally was super inspired by your story and it was really cool to watch you. I was out there spectating this year. So it was really, you know, inspiring to see you back after all these years and then going faster than ever. So, you know, thanks again for doing that and sharing your story here today with us. I think it's just all so inspiring. So you also have another kind of record to your name recently. So you have become the first amputee male or female, I believe to run the world marathon challenge. So I heard the motivation to race Kona came after you finished the world marathon challenge earlier this year, actually. So can you tell our listeners a little bit about what the world marathon challenge even is and why you wanted to do it? Yeah, so the World Marathon Challenge is an event where you do seven races in seven days on seven continents. And I had gotten a call from a buddy of mine who actually did Hawaii Ironman, just like I did. We both we didn't race it the same year, but that's how we know each other is through Ironman and endurance sports and stuff. And I watched him race Kona, but he was like, look, you know, you and I need to do something since it's, since it's been a long time since we've done the Hawaii Ironman. I want to put together a team to do this World Marathon Challenge, and I'd love you to do this with me. And he planted the seed. My friend David Sampson planted the seed of, like, you sh- let's do this crazy marathon challenge. And, of course, no amputee, uh, leg amputee, male or female had ever done the race. So that carrot was dangling as well. And the race just, it also sounds like a great, crazy adventure, right? You run in seven continents on seven days. You start in Antarctica, Antarctica to Cape Town, Cape Town to Perth, Australia, then to Dubai, then to Portugal, then to Cartagena, and then to Miami. So it just sounded like an incredible adventure. And I signed up two years ago, actually. So I had two years to prepare for that. And um, I finished that feat on February 5th. And when I got back from the race, you know, like a month 
had gone by and I was looking for something to do. I think so many of us Ironman or, you know, endurance athletes are very goal oriented. We need to have that next endorphin goal, that like thing to chase. And I was going through that post event let down. Like I was thrilled that I've done the world marathon challenge, but it was like the month after where I was getting a little depressed. So I was in a bar with um, Bob Babbitt, a tiki bar actually, and we were talking, having a Mai Tai appropriately and talking about the Hawaii Ironman. And he was like, would you ever consider doing the Ironman again? And I was like, of course I would. But, you know, I haven't been able to get in since I've, you know, since 05. And so he's like, well, you know, it's the 40th anniversary. And so that like the next day I went home after that night in the bar, I put my name in for the lottery and for the physically challenged athletes, you have to sign up through a lottery. It's a PC lottery. It's kind of the only way to get in. There is a qualification if you race in a wheelchair, but if you have a disability outside of the wheelchair or hand cycle division, the only way to get in a Kona is to do the physically challenged lottery. And so that's what I did. I put my name in for that. And they picked five people, men and women, all disability groups from around the world. So it's pretty hard to get in. But, you know, I I put my name in anyway and crossed my fingers and found out on February 5th that I got the I'm sorry, on May 5th, I found out I got the slot and started training. (laughs) That is so cool. And all good things happen in bars, I guess, especially tiki bars. But I do want to go back to this World Marathon Challenge because... I'm like in awe of this because Antarctica, first of all, wow, freezing, cold. And then you're in Cartagena, Colombia, which is like the surface of the sun I've heard. I've never been there. But I mean, how do you handle like those extremes? How do you pack? How do you handle those logistics? And what is Antarctica like? Yeah, it was crazy. I, it took me like two weeks to pack. I was very super organized. So that triathlete, you know, obsessing over your gear and your transition bags came in good training. But you did have to pack, pack for extreme conditions for negative four degrees in Antarctica and ice and wind and snow. So, you know, to the extreme heat of Cartagena, 90 degrees plus with humidity. So we do the first race in Antarctica. And that was even tricky, too, because in addition to the, like just the clothing and the nutrition and, and that kind of stuff that comes with weather, I also had prosthetic stuff to think about. And so on um, for the Antarctica race, I actually had a special uh, Nike sole that fit on the bottom of my Oser running foot. Like I normally wear that, but I made a special one that had spikes in it for the ice to grip the ice as I ran because it's a much slippery, I mean, ice is slippery and there's no concrete, you know, that you're going to grip underneath that ice. It's just more ice in Antarctica. And so I made a special prosthetic cover for that, like for my, my running foot um, to get through that race. And then I also brought extra, like an extra knee with because I have this Oser knee that I use. I'd never used it in four to below zero. Like I wasn't sure if it was going to freeze. I also didn't know. I know heat can also be an issue. And and if I had issues, just like you want to have a spare tire or a spare tube, I just carried extra prosthetic equipment. So I ended up, most competitors were, we were allowed two bags, but I was allowed a third bag, which had extra legs and different prosthetic equipment and crutches and stuff that I had just with me to handle all the terrain. So I had a lot to think about and prepare for, for like that extreme in Antarctica. And then because Antarctica is so close to South Africa, you fly and then you're racing your next race within seven hours. So there's not much of a recovery time. And the only way that we could really cover that distance was that it's a chartered airplane. So you take this chartered flight to go from place to place to place, and that's how you can get it done. So that's why as soon as the race was finished, then we could get on the plane and fly to Africa, get off the plane and and run the next race. So it was, that was the hardest part. It was like the longest race of my life was sort of these naps in between on the plane. I'm not even going to pretend to be able to like think about the time. I can barely figure out time zones when I'm traveling to one (laughs) other country, like one other time. But so was there ever, did you ever get a gap? I'm just interested in the sleep situation or it really felt just like you had some brief, like probably three or four hour sleeps kind of in between when all is said and done with the other logistics. Well, yeah, certainly the one between um, Antarctica and uh, South Africa, that was like maybe a two to three hour nap. 
But then to go from South Africa to Australia, that was like an 11, 12 hour flight. So that I got a good five, six, seven hours, you know, um, on the airplane. So, and then from Australia to Dubai, that was a pretty long distance too. But then after that, the flights just start to get shorter. So your sleep becomes less. But we, I mean, I never thought I'd be excited about a 13 hour flight, but I was like, yay, I get to sleep. And what are the courses like that they have you running? Is it kind of, is it like someone maps out a course close to the airport for you guys? Or is it like a special, did you get to see something special where you are? Well, on the, in Antarctica, we were very close to the airport because actually we just ran around the blue ice runway. We did laps around the runway. But in other places, we were a little further from the airport and we would like, we ran along a path along the river in Perth. And so sort of like a boardwalk and they measure out its certified distances for the race. And then like in Dubai, it was also along a boardwalk that was measured out. And in Portugal, it was along streets that were measured out. So it was just 52 of us. There were 52 of us on the plane or people that registered for it. So that's also was a bit of, the, of a challenge, too, is like when you're doing a race, a marathon or a half marathon with only 52 people, there's not a lot of crowd support or other athletes that are out there. I mean, in Ironman, you have two, you know, two to 3,000 other souls that are with you on the race, but this was only 52 of us. So you got to know everybody really well. And although you cheered for each other, there wasn't a ton of energy that you could pull from just from like the other competitors or spectators. Cause sometimes we like in Dubai, we were running in the middle, like kind of at like 10 o'clock, 11 o'clock at night. And so there was very little activity. Which course was your favorite or which location since you basically went around the world? Yeah. I mean, I loved Antarctica because I don't think I'll ever go back. And it was amazing to get to run like on the bottom of the earth, you know. Um, But I did really enjoy Dubai a lot, actually, because I also did run. I ran in Nike makes a hijab that you can wear for exercise because it's dry fit material. And so I did wear that for the race because I really wanted to wear the hijab. Everyone was like, you don't have to wear that. The men aren't going to make you wear that. And I was like, I'm not wearing it for the men. I'm wearing it in solidarity with my sisters, with the women that live there. And this is what they have to wear to honor their culture and they still want to exercise, but now they have the right gear to do so. And I'm going to wear what what a woman in Dubai would wear to exercise. And I think because I'm an athlete with a disability, I know how important it is to sort of see yourself reflected in order to see your possibility reflected. So that's also why I wore the hijab is that I wanted to sort of a inspire uh, the women of Dubai, and I'm, I'm assuming too, and I know that it's true that there are women with disabilities in Dubai that needed to see that reflection too. So, um, so that was really kind of a cool, um, adventurous race. But I loved every, you know, those are probably my two highlights: Antarctica, uh, Dubai, and of course the finish line in Miami was just a thrill. And was there a particularly tough moment? Then, you know, the opposite of the hi- highlights. What would you? What was your number one there? You know, I had a really tough time in Porto, Portugal. I'm not Porto. Sorry, we were in Lisbon. I was in Lisbon, Portugal. And the race was really tough there. It rained and there was this tile surface that was more slippery than Antarctica. And I kind of lost it. I, I almost dropped out, actually. And I even, I actually posted that on my Instagram story, like me having a meltdown and crying and talking about how I want to quit and I want to give up. Because I find that sometimes we show all those like smiling, happy moments on Instagram. We curate our lives. And I just thought I'm going to show some really ugly, real crying. And an Instagram story is only up there for 24 hours to do it, you know, (laughs) like, but I did, I showed that moment and, and I actually reposted it. So it's up there eternally because I just thought it was really important to show that. And I did almost quit. And I, cause I thought to myself, well, I've raced in, in, in Europe. I don't need this continent. I don't need it to fulfill the seven continents. I've done this continent. I've done so many triathlons and races here. I don't need Europe, but I was like, someone on the course saw that I was having a tough time. And I, and he's like, are you okay? And I'm like, no, I'm quitting. I'm out of here. And he gave me a hug and he said, Sarah, don't, don't quit. Cause you're going to regret it for the rest of your life. Please don't do that. And when he said that, it was like, of course I'd regret it for the rest of my life, but it just, I needed that clarity from someone else to remind me. And, and then I just started singing to myself and I stuck it out and I found a good song on my 
track list and pulled it back together and stuck it out. And, and I'm so glad I did. But but I think that, you know, I'm glad you raised that point because, yeah, it wasn't all sunshine and smiles and rainbows. There were definitely some tough moments. So talking about coming back from tough moments, we mentioned your 2005 Kona finish earlier, but that wasn't your first attempt racing on the Big Island. That came in 2004 when you missed the bike cutoff by less than 15 minutes. So how did missing that cutoff motivate you for the following year? And what changes did you make to get ready for 2005? Yeah, missing the cutoff was, you know, really, it was devastating at the time. But I also, you know, I think for any of us in our failures in life, it's what we do afterwards that really counts. And and I knew I had to pick myself up from that disappointment. And I had to go back to Kona and take care of that unfinished business. So I really took it as like, let's look at the lessons that I, what, what do I need to improve? And so um, I actually switched coaches. That was one of the things I did. I got a different bike. I got different race wheels. I picked different races to train, you know, like races in leading up to the 05. When I went back to go back to Kona, I decided to sign up for the half Ironman also in Kona. I just was like, let's race there. Let's get used to the conditions there. I went to, I also took a couple weekends of training in Kona. I went and did my own like training camps on the island. Probably not the smartest thing. I went into a lot of debt to like fund all of this. But I also knew that I just didn't want to leave anything to risk to miss the cutoff again. And and I think, you know, the good and the bad of being uh, featured in the Ironman thing is I certainly didn't want to fail again on television or in front of the world. And so that was this added pressure. And I also even I took some other extremes, like I took a leave of absence from my job. So I didn't get paid, but I took more time because I just didn't have enough vacation time. And I trained in the month leading up to Kona. I took that time off and I flew over to the island early and just prepared. So I was a bit obsessed, but it did all pay off. And, you know, uh, to make history and, and to cross that finish line successful, it made all the sacrifices worth it. I think the preparations just it's such a great story when you can, you know, it's not like this magical thing, right? It wasn't it, you know, it was nothing other than hard work and preparation. And like you said, you had to spend some money to, to get there, but it was, you know, clearly worth it for you. And it was really nice that you did allow the world to kind of watch in that journey too. So our listeners have, you know, surely picked up on this by now, but your leg was amputated and this happened when you were seven years old. And I believe I have this right, that it was due to a bone growth disorder that you had since birth. What was it like to have that happen at a young age? And did you use sports at that point to help you get through it as well? Yeah, I was seven years old when I had my left leg amputated above the knee. And it was basically, you know, when we say a, a bone growth disorder or tissue, it was a tissue disorder, which meant the bone stopped growing. It was basically my thigh bone that had stopped growing. And so, um, so while I had two legs, my left leg was extremely shorter than my right leg. And so it wasn't life-threatening, um, but we opted to amputate so that I could take advantage of better prosthetics. I was wearing a stiff knee brace or leg brace. Um, that I just was like a big stiff leg that I swung around to walk. But because of those cumbersome braces, I was never really able to be an athlete. I struggled in gym class. I struggled to keep up. And so in my mind, I felt like this amputation would allow me to be more active and athletic. And in in some ways, ultimately, that's what happened. But immediately afterwards, that it didn't happen. You know, I had my amputation and I went back to school. But it's very, it's very similar to what happens today. You get a couple of, of uh, physical therapy sessions after your amputation, but then they send you home and they don't cover running. So I learned to walk up and down and, uh, you know, to walk at the hospital. But I went back to the playground not really knowing how to run and not really knowing how to use this new leg and learning about sports. And, and you know, and I'm old enough, too, where I grew up in a time where we didn't have Google. We didn't have these resources online for me to really find out if there were sports opportunities for me as a young, you know, kid or an eight-year-old girl now with the desire to play like all the kids in my neighborhood. But I didn't know about a sports for people with disabilities, and I wasn't very active. My parents, you know, signed me up to be in regular sports after school, but I, I did struggle to keep up. 
And I even had coaches that wouldn't allow me to play with the other kids because of my disability. So I think actually that's what drove me to, to discover Ironman and want to pursue an individual sport because I spent most of my childhood being excluded from the team sports. So I actually didn't learn until I run until I was 11 years old. So I, you know, I, that's why I think I'm so passionate about sports now is I went through most of my childhood not participating. So I always say I'm making up for lost time. And once you did start running, you did very well. I think you participated in the 92 Paralympics. You set the world record in the marathon multiple times. And you have said in previous interviews that it was meeting Jim McLaren, who was a Kona finisher and below the knee amputee, that made you realize that you could race Ironman. So how important was it for you to see someone like yourself racing Ironman? Yeah, I... um... I learned about Ironman from that athlete you talked about, Jim McLaren, who was a, an amputee, a baloney amputee, and he had done the 1992 Ironman in Hawaii in 10 hours and 42 minutes. So, like, smoking time. And at the time, we didn't have, like, these fancy Osir running feet that we have now. He just had, like, the Osir walking foot. But he did the Ironman in his walking foot because we just didn't have him. But, like, so the fact that he threw down that time even before the invention of sports prosthetics was amazing. But, you know, he and I used to get our legs made at the same place. And so I, he's the one that introduced me to Ironman as a concept. I didn't even know about Ironman. And the fact that he could do it and the fact that I knew him and we got our legs made at the same place, he wasn't also just some image on a magazine. I actually, you know, knew him and shook his hand and he was, and um, he inspired me. We did a couple runs together, some relay races and stuff where I, we were on, um, you know, those running relays. And so it just that made it feel so accessible to me that like, wow, if he could do it, I could do it. And I, um, I had even said to Jim one time, I said, you know, hey, Jim, I think I'm going to do the Ironman one day. I would love to do the Ironman. And he turned to me and he was like, well, I don't know of a woman on a prosthetic leg that, that could do it. And I just like it shocked me a that he said that to me that he didn't think a woman could do it. And then I just, you know, this I was a teenager at the time and I was just like, you know, I, I respect you a lot, Jim, but I thought in my head, like, screw you, dude. I, I'm going to do the Ironman, and I'm going to show you that a girl could do it, too. And so I think I was both inspired, but I was also challenged of a throwdown for me just to prove him wrong. Sarah, now you work very closely with the Challenged Athletes Foundation, which assists athletes with physical challenges and helps them live an active lifestyle and compete in all sorts of athletic events. What do you think about the kids now that you see growing up today with more support and so many more role models, including female role models like yourself? You know, the Challenge Athletes Foundation was actually started because of Jim McLaren. So there's, there's a thread there. And that's why I'm so passionate about CAF, because Jim was my role model. And I see my involvement with CAF. It's my, you know, my chance to be a role model and a coach and a mentor to the next generation. And truthfully, it's, it's a large part while I came back to Ironman 13 years later, because truthfully, no above knee uh, female leg amputee has done the Hawaii Ironman since I've done it. So that's like a 13 year drought in that space. And, and I wanted to just like, there's a whole generation of kids that you know, um, aren't going to see that Iron Man from 13 years ago. And I wanted to like show the example again that, you know, it's still possible. And a woman with a disability still deserves her place at the Iron Man starting line. And so that was part of my big purpose that was driving me in this, in the race this year. I was also raising money for, um, I set up a fundraising mm -hmm. campaign around this one so I could really um, use it to help pay for prosthetic limbs for, um, you know, those prosthetic running legs are so expensive. I know a lot of the barriers to entry is just getting that, you know, right equipment. And especially in Ironman, you need a cycling prosthetic plus a running prosthetic plus your, you know, your walking prosthetic just to get there. So a tough prospect for some folks to get that adaptive equipment because it's not covered by health insurance. So if you want to get a running leg or a cycling leg, you pay out of pocket for that. And so I wanted, I really was driven um, at this Hawaii Ironman this year for a purpose, for a larger purpose. And, and I even put, I love, I use my label maker and I write things like I type them out and I, I stick them all over my bike 
And so I even had names of, of some of the young kids that I've mentored and inspired that um, I put that on my bike and I had CAF on my bike. And so when I was having a tough moment, sometimes out, out at the Queen K, I would look down and remember why I was here and why I needed to stay strong. And um, it really is something that drove me in my training, but definitely on race day. Sarah, you've mentioned several times the changes in prosthetics that have you know, evolved just in your career in sports. How has prosthetic technology changed over the years? It's changed a lot. You know, certainly in my lifetime, it's changed. And even in the 13 years that since I've done it, actually, that was kind of another thing that inspired me to kind of go, I want to see what I can do now, because I ran on a certain style of running foot last time. But the, but in 13 years, they have a totally, they've redesigned the running blade. So um, it's even more uh, efficient for distance running. So I got a different Oser running foot. Then I got, um, Oser came out with a new running knee, which didn't exist when I did it 13 years ago. Mm -hmm. So they have this new cheetah knee. So I was like, I want to see what it's like to do it on this new Oser running knee, you know? And so it's much lighter. It's like six ounces lighter. So you know, that's significant. And so I, you know, so I had a different uh, foot and a different knee. And I also had a different socket, a different way to, it's the technology that people don't think about, but it's what holds my leg on. And it's a silicone liner that uh, conditions my skin so it can stay on for that long of a day. It has aloe vera and Vaseline. And so, but also it had a different suspension system. So I could switch my transitions could be quicker because of the technology. So there was a lot of things that I knew would help me in this triathlon. Now, don't get me wrong. I love to talk about the prosthetic technology, but I am still the engine that runs it. So although I have all these new fancy gadgets, it's still not going to go any faster than me propelling it. You know, it is a mechanical knee. So I am the engine that's kicking it out or pulling it up on the bike. So I did have some better prosthetic equipment, but I also like to say that the engine was more finely tuned as well. I think that's actually a perfect kind of segue to my next question I wanted to touch on with you. So as a para-athlete, you're in this separate category, right? And so we noted that you're the first female leg amputee to complete and finish the Ironman. And so I'm sure this is, you know, obviously not something new to you. And sport and categories in general just go hand in hand, right? So mm -hmm. you've taken your career since then to help para-athletes kind of transcend that category that they can be put in in sport and to be simply an athlete, right? So how do you coach them to, to see that and to look at themselves beyond their category and to really see themselves as the athlete? You know, um, I actually now work at, um, I work at Nike and I only bring that up because part of our mission statement at Nike is to bring innovation and inspiration to every athlete in the world. And then the word athlete has an asterisk on it. And, it, and we like to say, because the asterisk goes down to this thing that Bill Bowerman, one of the founders said, he said, if you have a body, you are an athlete. And I love that expression because it's so inclusive. I mean, every one of us has a body. And that means every one of us is an athlete. And no matter what body you have, you are an athlete. And so that's something I actually wear a bracelet that says that if you have a body, you are an athlete. And it's something I often use when I mentor and I work with challenged athletes who want to get involved in sport. And I always use that phrase. If you have a body, you are an athlete because I want to empower them to see themselves as athletes. Um, it doesn't matter if they've done an Ironman or if they're doing a 5k or the 1k turkey trot, you know, like they are still athletes. Like that's an infinite uh, title and you have the right to claim that title, you know, regardless of what type of body you have. And so, and, and one of the things that I love about endurance sport is, you know, and, and, and I always encourage para-athletes, like, look, you don't have to go to the Paralympics to be an athlete either. You know, it's partly why I pivoted away from the Paralympics actually, actually because there weren't a lot of events and there still aren't offered for women. And so I pivoted away from the Paralympics because I wanted more chances to compete all the time. And it's why I'm so proud to be a marathoner and an Ironman athlete, because there are 70.3s, there are Ironman races, there are marathons and road races 
in almost, you know, so many different towns in so many places around the world that you can get involved with and you can just sign up. And, you know, sometimes there aren't categories. You're just with the masses. But the fact that those races are inclusive and that everybody is invited to participate and to compete and try their best. I mean, that's that's what fuels me. And that's why I I love our community of triathlon. And and I'm I'm more proud of the work that's being done actually outside of the Paralympics, because to me, that's more inclusive. That's so interesting. I just, I didn't realize that there were just fewer events and everything like that. That's totally new to me. You mentioned earlier about, you know, you are the engine for all of your training and all of your racing. And so I'm curious about how training does differ. Cause I think I, in another interview, I heard you say like, you really only have 10% uh, of your power coming from your left leg, even with the prosthetic. So do you have to alter your, your training and your racing? Because obviously you're not going to spend, I mean, it, you're riding a bike with one leg that could wear you out really fast. (laughs) Yeah. Um, I do sometimes modify my training a little bit. I work now with a coach, um, with McKeeley Jones. She's my coach and she's been a coach for a while. She's excellent. But one of the cool things about McKeeley too, is that she does have a lot of experience with both para athletes because she competed on the Australian Paralympic team as a guide. So she knows how to modify a lot of those programs because she's worked with so many adaptive athletes. But in many ways, it's her experience as um, an able-bodied athlete that has brought so many performance strides to me and and enhancements um, to my program. I would say, though, the training for me isn't was probably more different this year, not because of my prosthetic but because I had injured my foot, my one good foot, I got a stress fracture after uh, I did Ironman Santa Rosa, or sorry, the 70.3 Santa Rosa to verify my slot for Kona. And that race is end of July. And I ended up getting a stress fracture in that race. Like I had been training and then just that race day exacerbated it. And I, and um, it showed up on an MRI that now I got a stress fracture. So I was told not to do any running for 10 weeks before the race. Now that's end of July, which puts you at early August. And now the race is October. So for this race, we ended up modifying because I, the, the doctor, my foot doctor was like, look, you can't run not for at least eight weeks, maybe 10 depending on how you heal. So I actually, for this Ironman, I did no running training. The only training I did was biking and swimming. I only ran about two weeks before the Ironman started. And my longest race uh, before Kona, my longest run before Kona was 45 minutes. So that was very different. uh, And and you only ran, you ran like eight minutes slower than you did in 2005. Your run was still fantastic. You ran I know. 559. I, I mean, crazy. it was a fantastic I mean, run. I walked more than I had wanted, but I just couldn't. I mean, I wasn't properly trained to do more. So yeah, it was crazy. <laughs> but obviously there is some carryover from cycling and just general fitness. And because that's a fantastic time. Well, and I had done that seven races in seven days. Oh, right. You know, it wasn't that far <laughs> gone. And that's what I kept thinking about. Like, instead of freaking out about, oh my God, I'm undertrained. I can't do this. You know, a lot of so much of Ironman, and we've all said this so many times, is mental. But I had to arm myself with those mental strategies and and things to tell myself to quash any doubt. Because the doubt can come up when you're out there. It just does, right? You start to feel sore and you're tired. And so I armed, I armed myself with things that I could say to myself, like during the run when it got hard, like you've just done seven marathons in seven days. You can do this. You've done this race before. Like I just had things that I could say to myself. But yeah, I, I it was a big mental game out there because I was so under-trained. <laughs> And Sarah, you've actually had the opportunity to do something a little bit more outside the realm of triathlon and Ironman and everything marathons. I'm a huge reality TV show fan. I think Haley has a few of her favorites too. And so you were a contestant on The Amazing Race. What was that like for you? Oh, the Amazing Race was awesome. And it's actually how I followed up the Ironman in 2005, because in anticipation of like after the Hawaii Ironman in 05, it was like, what are we going to do after the race? And so um, the guy that I did the Amazing Race was a guy named Peter Harsh. He and I both raced in Kona in 2005. 
So we were actually on a training ride in on the Queen K in 2005, in September of that year. And we were riding down the Queen K going, what are we going to do after Ironman? Like, what's going to be the next goal, you know, to avoid that post-event funk you go through? And so he, my, so my friend Peter turns to me, he's like, I think we should do the Amazing Race. And I was like, we can't just sign up for it. It's not like, you know, like the New York Marathon, you just sign up. He's like, no, but I think we should do that. I, I can see it now. We're going to do the Amazing Race. Well, flash forward to like two, early 2006, we get a phone call from the Amazing Race saying, hi, we are interested in ca- casting somebody with an amputation. Would you consider auditioning? And I was like, oh, my gosh. So my buddy and I, Peter, we auditioned for the show and we got on. And I have to say it was the toughest race of my life. I thought, you know, having done Ironman, I thought the amazing race is going to be a cakewalk. But most races don't last for six weeks. So that's a long time to mentally keep yourself like racing in that way. And I was also thinking like a triathlete, like, you know, um, train heavy, race light, like just get food out in the race course. That was kind of a mistake. You don't really get a meal from CBS until you hit a pit stop and it can take you two or three days to get to a pit stop. So we were very hungry and that's when you get really good drama. Of course, some people are, um, um, hungry and in a rush, but I, if I had known better, I would have packed a whole lot more gels and shoes and cliff bars and all sorts of things. But yeah, that made it a very tough race is, um, not being fueled pro- properly. Did you watch yourself on TV afterwards? And like, did yes. you watch how they edit it? Do they really like edit it really different to like make things seem how they aren't? I mean, you always wonder, is this real or is it editing? Well, this is what we we would say. Peter and I often said this. They captured a real moment. I might have really said that, but sometimes they can take stuff out of context, you know, or they can show the one bad moment, you know. So all of that stuff really did happen. They might not have always shown our best moments, you know. Um, uh, and I, I think I got a really good edit, but I think my partner did get a really bad edit. You know, it just made it like, you know, and he's a fierce competitor. Like he's, you know, an Ironman guy qualified in his age group, but, he, and he would treat me no different, but it just started looking at like, he was just yelling at the one legged girl to go faster. You know, like it just, <laughs> they always showed him like yelling at me, not always when he was like encouraging me. So you know, it was, it was, it was tough, but I was really proud of the fact that we did win two legs of the amazing, like two, um, we won in India and we also won in, um, was it Vietnam? Uh, no, Mongolia. We also won Mongolia and, um, in India, we won two legs of the race and then we just got bad directions. You know, a lot of the race is luck. It has nothing to do with your skills. It's like, you might get a bad cab driver, you get a flat tire, you get bad directions. So, I mean, I guess it's like any other race. Sometimes it's down to luck, but, um, but it was a great adventure and I got to do things I never thought I would do. Um, it definitely changed my life. Well, and if you follow 2005 Ironman with it, I mean, maybe we need to have some like redemption for your partner. Maybe he can show a different light with the editing or something. And we can get you guys back on. I think it's still running. So 2019. Actually, um, the host of the show, Phil Kogan is a big cyclist and I keep trying to convince him to do an Ironman. I think it's time for him to, to do that. But anyway, it seems only fair. I mean, if you've done yeah. the amazing race, right? Well, Sarah, thank you so much for your time today talking to us and where can our listeners follow you to find out exactly what your next adventure will be? Yeah, no, a good place to follow me is always try. That's my handle on Instagram. It's at always T-R-I. And so that's where I'm always posting my next adventures and, and all the work that I'm doing with Challenge Athletes Foundation um, to help other folks get off the sideline and in the game. Sarah mentioned that she raced Kona this year to help raise money for the Challenge Athletes Foundation. And her fundraiser is actually still going on. So if you want to donate, her website is alwaystry.com. You scroll down and that donation page is still live. She's, she's on her way to her goal of $40,000 raised. And, um, so if you feel inclined and want to help her reach that goal, check it out. Really great to talk to Sarah, uh, just as a, a fangirl moment and stuff like that. So really thank you, Sarah, for coming on the show. And I had a fun time with that, that interview for sure. Um, and Haley, I was just looking and I did realize that we missed one question that came on through Instagram about our race. And that was, have I convinced you to do the crown jewel 100 ultra with me? 
the crown jewel one is this 100 miles or 100k i'm not sure probably 100 miles sounds like 100 miles (laughs) but it sounds like there's a, a crown jewel at the end i mean we could find some treasures Alyssa, someday i would run 100 miles with you but i like I mean, that, that scares me a lot and you're going to have to like figure out how I'm going to get enough food in me to do that. And maybe like how, how yeah, I need, I would need some help. You have to teach me how to do the GI, uh, how my GI can handle like exercising for that long. Um, I would love to someday, probably not in the near future, but yeah, I won't say never. Okay. I ha- we have it on the record. We got to find out where this crown jewel is though. Cause I want to know if this is like, I think one of those ones, I would be more like inclined to do one of those ones that's like one mile loop and we just run it a hundred times versus if this is like some mountain somewhere it's in like, georgia I'm, I'm pretty sure it's in georgia oh, is it the cruel it's the cruel jewel oh wait I think there's no crown jewels in georgia. <laughs> <laughs> the cruel jewel oh <laughs> uh, yes very it does say cruel jewel <laughs> that race is super hard i'll do the cruel jewel 10k <laughs> that's amazing Um, well i'm gonna be racing for crown jewels so hopefully they have some for me at the end i feel like i know who wrote this question was this thomas odom yes yes yes. (laughs) maybe thomas will come thomas could come crew for us no he'd run it with us he's a good he's a good running partner so thank you thomas i do miss i miss running trails with you maybe yeah i'll do it i'll do it with the two of you for sure let's play maybe like 20 30 (laughs) i need a lot of training Sounds good. And Haley, congratulations again on your race this last weekend. It was super fun to race with you. And for our listeners, please go rate and uh, leave us a review if you can on whatever app you use for the podcast listening. And if you're looking for that last minute stocking stuffer, don't forget fencoffee.com is a great option for you. Use the code IRONWOMEN and you'll get a little discount. And then someone will have some amazing Iron Women or Feisty Blend coffee in their stocking this Christmas. Alyssa, it was awesome to have you back on a triathlon race course. So I hope we have, we get to do it again sometime in 2019, but I will uh, talk to you next week. Sounds good. Bye, Haley. This is a special song. It's me and my friend's song that we made ourselves. This song is called Here I Am. Get ready for the chorus. I am here now you cannot take me. I will stand up this whole entire time. I am strong now you cannot beat me. I will stand up because I am here. The Iron Woman Podcast is a live feisty media production. Our hosts are Alyssa Gadiski and Haley Chara. And our awesome editors, Aaron Hamilton. Also, we couldn't do this without our sponsors, Wahoo Fitness, FTC Nutrition, and Smash Fest Queen. Oh, <laughs>